Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Hey team, please help me get the word out. The best support you can provide for this show is to share it with someone else, either on the web or in person. You can also provide us with an iTunes rating and review. And be sure to use a unique name or it won't work. Why? I have no idea. I just know you have to use a unique username. Maybe that weird one from college. Mine was I like chicken. A brief disclaimer. In part of today's episode, we discuss a subject that might not be suitable for children. So, if your kids are around, you might want to wait until they aren't to continue listening. Are they out of earshot? A piece of today's show includes our guest sharing a time of struggle when she considered ending her life. Obviously she didn't, and we spend the majority of the episode on other topics, including some of the strategies she used to move past that stage and being a mom with ADHD. But I want to be mindful of my listeners' needs, so I'm telling you in advance. That said, I also recognize that shying away from such topics doesn't help anyone. So I'll let you be the judge of how to handle this episode moving forward. People consider suicide when their emotional pain overwhelms their coping resources, often when they are in the depths of depression. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please call the national hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. This is episode 29. Today, I'm talking to my friend Kat. Kat is a single mom with ADHD whose child is neurotypical. She's among the strongest people I know. In this episode, Kat tells us about her journey with ADHD and depression. Along the way, she'll share why she initially found her ADHD diagnosis to be so devastating, how she changed her perspective on that, her three T's of thought, tips on co-parenting, and of course, her love for her son. Let's get rolling. I was never the mom that had the wet wipes in the bag. I was always trying to find other moms that were more prepared. And and I should preface by saying I did not know that I had ADHD. I was not diagnosed until my son was about four or five. When he was that young, I had no idea what was quote unquote wrong with me. Um, And I was also in a relationship with a neurotypical dad that was not very helpful, very frustrated with my, with how ADHD manifested for me. You know, there was a lot of guilt and shame around being that sort of unprepared parent. 
and feel free to share to the degree that you are comfortable around dad and that relationship, which I'm assuming has now ended. Yeah, we went through a divorce and yeah, we co-parent very, very well together. That's good. Yes. So what, what were those challenges? Like what were the struggles that, that your husband was not understanding about and how did that present itself? So when we were having our issues, the the problems that he would bring up to me, the frustrations that he had with me specifically were things like that I was running late all the time. It took me, you know, forever to get ready. Um, I would forget things. Um, I had a ton of unfinished projects, you know, just things like that. So when I looked, when I was finally diagnosed, I was like, ah, this all makes sense now as to why all of those things were happening. And there was also a level of almost mourning, like thinking, I can't change that. Now I I have a different mindset now, but at the time it was really, it was terrifying. I thought no one's ever going to love or accept me because I'm damaged because all of those things that he was frustrated with me were my brain wiring. So when I was diagnosed, I had a very different reaction than a lot of people that I know of as adults. Most people I've heard are very relieved. I cried for about three days. So it was not a, it was not a great diagnosis. And you've said that your mindset has changed around that. So does that then mean that you realize that you can do something about that? Yes, absolutely. So the things that I've done since, so when I say it wasn't a good diagnosis, then it's, You know, I'm certainly happy that I was diagnosed because then I could start to address the issues. I did get on medication. I'm not currently on medication. I have no issues with it whatsoever. It just isn't right for me for various reasons. I was on meds for a while. Um, I took coaching classes. Um, I've really just gotten to a place of acceptance of where I am so that I can address things and uh, manage my life around what works for me. Sounds like hiding in there is my three A's of awareness, acceptance, and action. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. What were some of the challenges you were experiencing as a mom with ADHD early on and and through that process? I guess pre-diagnosis is where I'm going. Okay. Okay, good. That's that's a different, pre-diagnosis is different than after diagnosis. And there were some odd things after the diagnosis too. But pre-diagnosis, there was more frustration with myself. Like, why can't I be the mom who has the wet wipes? You know, why can't I be more prepared? Um, A little bit of envy around other, you know, other parents. I did a lot of comparison to other parents and myself. You know, at the time I was also in in a job that probably wasn't a good fit for me either. So I was working ridiculous amounts of hours. I was working at home. So it there were a lot of other outside factors where ADHD was kind of affecting everything and sort of snowballing. And I was not in a good state of mind at that point. Okay. You say, share what I'm, what I'm comfortable with. Maybe other people have been there. I was literally at the point that I was suicidal. That was while I was still married. So I really felt like I was a failure at everything in my life. I had Um, I'd had an argument with my now ex-husband. I left the house and kind of came to my senses when I realized that I was planning on how to wreck my car without, you know, making it look like an accident. And then that next day I reached out for help. 
it was to say it was traumatic is probably pr pretty accurate. It was not a good time in my life because I, I felt like a failure everywhere. How did you go about reaching out for help? Um, I called a therapist. I uh, at the time I worked for an awesome company that had an AEP program, EAP program, employee assistance program, and um, I reached out and just started talking to a therapist. My first three sessions, I didn't even bring up the suicidal ideations. It wasn't until about the fourth session that I said, okay, here's what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So it, it took me a while to get to a point that I was comfortable with anyone talking about it. Okay. And now you're to the point where you're mentioning it on a podcast. So Now I'm to the point that I actually have a tattoo that says my story isn't over and I'm about to, with a business partner, form a nonprofit that is specifically for people that have, you know, that are either suicidal or know someone that is. It's really to, to raise awareness and conversations around suicide okay. and mental health. Well, and, and that's what we're doing here. Not specifically right. suicide. In this case, we're talking about it. Um, but certainly the point of this podcast is to get people more comfortable talking about mental health stuff in general, in this right. case, through the lens of ADHD. And I'm sure, I'm sure you're not the only person with ADHD who's considered suicide. I, I know for a fact that I'm not. And it's, it's something that, you know, when I talk to people in the tribe, um, it's pretty common to, to, to try to compare yourself to what you think is normal and feel like you're, you're falling short. And, right. you know, that's just not, it's not my reality today. I've, I've changed my mindset around it. And I've also changed how much I put on my plate, what I put on my plate. So there, now that I have that awareness, um, I'm able to affect that very differently. And that's part of why I asked sort of, what did you do? Because right. I know you, so I know that that's not where you are right now. And right. I didn't know that you had been there at one point. Right. So to hear that you've made this much growth around that is, mm -hmm. is pretty impressive. And I will tell you that that was eight years ago. And I spent about three years in a functional depression where I did, you know, I got up, I went to work. Um, I was no longer suicidal, but I was not in, in a good place. But I, you know, I've definitely worked to get out of that place and paid attention to how I got out so that I can help other people. So how did you get out? Sort of like your three A's, the first thing, I have three T's around thought. The first one is thought awareness. So it matches yours very, you know, very closely. It's, it's thought awareness, just being aware of the thoughts. That was the first thing I had um, an aha moment of the fact that my thoughts were creating how I was feeling. So I started to try to change my thoughts around situations so that I could change how I felt about them. And specifically, I, I worked with gratitude. And I had no idea what I, that I was doing that at the time. I just thought, I can't feel like this anymore. So, you know, how can I change it? So I, I was actually mowing my lawn. And it was just a very frustrating time for me for a lot of reasons. And I thought, I need to try to find some gratitude around this. And I started, you know, just being grateful that I had a lawn, that I had a lawnmower, that I had help to be able to do it. And I felt myself starting to shift. And that really was the first pivot of a lot of shifts that happened. So the, the thought awareness, then I started really paying attention to my thoughts. And I actually um, started a blog. And I think I did maybe one <laughs> blog. <laughs> 
but I'm so glad that I did. Like it doesn't like even now that that's part of my story that I think, wow, I'm so glad that I did this because I was writing like about me. It was right after my diagnosis and I wanted to kind of journal my journey through um I think I even said something about thriving, not just surviving with ADHD. Okay. But as I was writing my bio, I wrote, I talked to myself in a way that I would never speak to another human being, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I had that epiphany that I really don't know that I knew that before. So then I started paying attention to how am I speaking to myself? What am I saying? So that went into thought analysis. I started challenging my thoughts. I stopped believing everything I was thinking and started to really challenge everything from my spiritual beliefs to my beliefs about myself, other people, relationships, all of that. So everything was up for grabs so that I could figure out what real was. Um, and I'm, a lot of times people say, oh, you're so positive. I'm like, I'm not positive. And I don't want to try to teach people to be positive all the time. You know, stuff happens in life that we're not positive all the time. I'm looking to be realistic. You know, we can look at things logically versus emotionally. And I'm an incredibly emotional person. So that's a little bit of a a challenge, but I'm in a better place now because I take some time to be aware of the thought, to analyze the thought. And then the third one is I manage the thought. So thought, awareness, thought analysis, and then thought management, Mm -hmm. which is pretty close to the awareness, acceptance, and action stuff that I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, My A's are around ADHD and really any problem that can be taken and moved over to like eating disorders and just about anything. Right. Um, but, but it's you first, you have to be aware of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's very intellectual. You have to know that that's a thing that mm-hmm. you have right. an eating disorder that you, that the ADHD is affecting you in a negative way or whatever. Right. Then you have to accept it. And that's entirely emotional and very, very different. Right. So you can know you have an eating disorder, but not care. Or, or not feel the need to change it, even if you sort of do care. Right. And it's not until you get those two checked off that you can really take any action around addressing whatever the problem is that's getting in your way. Right. Um, but you're, uh, what you're talking about is pretty similar. It's a, it's a very nice pairing. Yeah, it's very similar. And the, the thing that sort of to piggyback on what you're saying about that you have to accept it, the people that I work with a lot of times aren't in a place. I shouldn't say a lot of times more. I should say occasionally aren't in a place to move to the point where they're actually managing their thoughts. Uh, You know, I get a lot of people that say, I can't help it. It's just the way I think. Okay. I mean, you, you can help it, but it takes work. It takes work and it's worth it. So you've talked about sort of this idea of the pre-diagnosis, how things were for you then, and including the divorce that's in there too. Mm Mm-hmm. There's sort of the pre-divorce time, when, which are, is also pre-diagnosis. Right. And then you've got the post-divorce time that is also pre-diagnosis. Short period of time. I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed about, well, I was diagnosed before the divorce was actually final. So we were separated for a, about, from start to everything finishing was about a two-year period. So I was diagnosed within that first year. Okay. It was during one of my therapy sessions. So while I was still married, I was in therapy. I was explaining to my therapist how I had a lot of guilt around taking downtime. 
So I needed, I didn't know what it was at the time, but now I know that it was my time to recharge. It felt very lazy to me. And as I was explaining to her why it felt lazy, I realized it was because my dad is the energizer bunny and very H of the ADHD. So he would go from literally like 5.30 in the morning until he would he would come in for a, like a 20-minute nap. Really, it was probably a 10-minute nap. And then about halfway through the day, and then he would finish up at 9 o'clock at night and fall down. And that's literally how he goes. And he expects everyone else to do that. And she said to me, well, there's no way he can do that unless he's ADHD. And I was like, well, okay, he does do that. And ADHD is only for kids. Like he wouldn't be, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have ADHD. So I came home and looked up the symptoms, trying to kind of figure out what she meant by that. And as I read through this list of 100 things, I checked off 99 for myself. Wow. So I, I remember saying at that time to my husband, you know, can we read through these? Do you relate to any of these? Because I'm relating to almost every single one of them. And he's like, yeah, you know, about 50% you related to. So, you know, now I understand that a lot better because everyone has, you know, some of those, some of the issues with the way ADHD manifests. That's why neurotypical people a lot of times will think that it's just about us not, you know, managing our time better or. Right. Or doesn't everybody have ADHD? Yes. Right. Everybody gets sad, but not everybody has depression. Right. Right. Everybody feels harried and busy and loses track of time, but not everybody has ADHD. Right. Yeah. So you get the diagnosis and it's, it's a blow. Most people that I talk to when they, and, I, and you alluded to this, mm-hmm. most people when I talk to when they share their diagnosis, it's an aha moment and all of a sudden it explains so much of what they've experienced up until that point. But it sounds like that's not what happened for you. For you, it was more of a blow and you were like, yeah, this is very true. And it's devastating. And I think for me, the reason it was devastating was because, you know, if I'm being honest and I'm really careful about putting blame on my ex-husband for things, because if I blame him for the situation, then I'm the victim, mm-hmm. you know, through it. And I don't, I, I don't want that. And I don't want that for other people, but I believed the things he was saying. I believed, you know, the fact that I ran late or didn't finish projects or, you know, that kind of, those types of things made me a bad person. So the reason it was such a big blow for me is that I associated those behaviors with being a good person or a bad person. And I saw myself as damaged goods. You know, no one is going to want me in their lives because, and it affected friendships uh, where I was afraid to be friends with people because I was afraid I would disappoint them. Now I have amazing friendships and sometimes I do disappoint them and sometimes they disappoint me. Right. (laughs) And, and, yeah, it is. Every people, you're just going to disappoint people and people right. are going to disappoint you. Right. And it's just the way it goes. Like it, right. it's okay. Yeah. Um, but you touched on, you sort of skimmed over it really quickly, but it's something that I think is really important for the audience to hear and to be mindful of. And that is the moralization of ADHD. We often put a ton mm. of moral judgment onto ADHD qualities. Oh, you're, you're lazy or you just don't care or you're inconsiderate. That isn't necessarily the case. That that implies a level of intent right. that often isn't there. Like, I didn't forget your birthday because I don't care about you. 
I call you once a week. Like I care about you. I forgot your birthday because I'm really bad at remembering dates. That's why I forgot your birthday. And it's funny that you bring that up because that was one of the things that I think scared me away from friendships for a very long time. I had a really good friend and it was a milestone birthday. It was her 40th birthday. And we were supposed to go out that night. And I was at work until 10 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> and I was getting ready to kind of pack everything up and I, it hit me. Oh no, we were, we were supposed to go out. And I totally stood her up and I went down this shame hole and didn't call her. She was an awesome friend. I didn't call her. I, you know, was terrified. I thought I've, I've lost her forever. And she called me a couple weeks later and I said, I, I can't believe that you're still speaking to me. And she said, huh? I mean, it, it happens. I was disappointed, but it happens. And that was a, another pivotal moment for me that I realized that not everyone was going to use it against me the way it had been used against me in the past. And I think kind of to your point too, on the, did you say moralization of yeah, it? Yeah, we moralize ADHD. Yeah. And I, um, some people in the tribe that I've talked to, we, we talk about it as for a long time, it's been um, characterized as like character defects. Mm -hmm. These are defects in your character. And I definitely felt like that. And when I got the diagnosis, I'm like, and it will never get better. Like I said, I was in a functional depression at that time. So that hopelessness was right. certainly part of my mindset during that period in my life. Oh, yeah. The depression is definitely going to color your perspective. Right. It sounds like you got the ADHD diagnosis and you said, oh, I am lazy in effect. Mm -hmm. Yes. As opposed to other people I talk to who get the ADHD diagnosis and say, oh, I'm not lazy. I have ADHD. For them, it's an explanation of their flaws. And for you, it was a justification of your flaws. Yes. I want to make sure that my, I, we've sort of revisited this a couple of times. And I want to make sure that my listeners are hearing that because I often get parents asking me, how do I tell my kid they have ADHD? And there isn't really a correct answer to that. Mm -hmm. I'm generally like, you tell them. You just say, this is what's up. This is what it is. This is what you have. Mm -hmm. But there is a wrong answer to that. And, and that is turning it into, it means you're lazy. It means you're less than. Right. And that's what we want to avoid when we're talking to our kids about their diagnosis. Right. We want to frame it in terms of, an, this is why these things happen. And it doesn't, these things don't have to happen the way they do. Mm -hmm. This diagnosis means we can learn skills to help you avoid these pitfalls because now we've defined our sandbox. Turns out all the strategies we use so far were outside of that sandbox and that's why none of them worked. But now we'll try some stuff that's in the sandbox and we'll get experts and we'll nail this down. So what is it like being a mother of a son who is neurotypical? incredibly challenging and incredibly rewarding. I'll start with the rewarding side of things. He is very, very time aware. He knows exactly how long it takes him to get ready in the morning. He, and he's really good at managing his time. He likes to get up in the morning and kind of chill for a little bit. And then he knows what time he needs to start. And, and I'll, I'll say he's, he's 12. Um, so he knows, he, he manages himself, he has uh, an alarm clock that goes off, and he will start to brush his teeth and get dressed and do all those things 
totally on his own. I'm not in the background going, it's time to do this. It's time to do that. You know, he's doing all of that on his own. Another thing that just blew me away this school year, when he came home, I would always ask him, what homework do you have? So I did at least do that. Um, but I didn't, I was, I've never had to like sit over him and make sure he does the homework. Again, he liked to come home, chill for a little bit and then start in his homework. And he had, we did set an alarm for that. And he would, as soon as the alarm went off, he would get his books out and start working on it. But when he said to me, I have a project that's due in two weeks, I think I'm going to work on it for 20 minutes each night and I should be done two days early. Blew my mind because that just, that doesn't even, I, I can't even fathom having that kind of awareness of time. You know, he is not someone who rushes at the last minute to get all of these things done. So there's an, a really odd guilt that I have when I talk to, because, you know, we know that ADHD is hereditary. So many of my friends who have children with ADHD have ADHD themselves. And when they share their stories and struggles, I sort of feel like the same thing I felt when my son sort of potty trained himself. I felt a little guilty, like I didn't go through all these struggles that I was supposed to. So sometimes I literally, I, well, I shouldn't say so, I, not anymore, but there were times that I felt guilt around the fact that my son was so easy to parent. I get that. Cause I've seen the opposite of that. I've seen the inverse of that where parents make raising their kids a million times harder than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then wear that difficulty, like a badge of courage. Oh, right. Right. And I'm like, nah, you're like, what? You didn't have to go through all that. I right. know. Cause I avoided all of that. Like I just didn't do it that way. Right. And, yeah. But I put so much more effort in. Right. Therefore I'm a better parent. Right. Yeah. And it, it's sort of like that cult of busy stuff. It's, a, it's related to the Brene Brown's concept of like your busyness is not a sign of your self-worth. Right. And your intense effort that you're putting in on the behalf of your kid might be necessary. That certainly is a thing, especially if you have a kid with ADHD. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if it's not necessary, it, you don't have to feel bad about the fact that it's not, and you don't have to make it harder than it needs to be in order to get a merit badge. And as you say that, I remember that was a time in my life that I wore busyness like a badge of honor. It was, I love to say to people when they'd say, how are you? Crazy busy, you know? So it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that whole mindset was that everything needed to be difficult in order for it to be rewarding. Maybe I don't, I don't know, but now I'm incredibly grateful that I've got, you know, a child who, who has all this and I learned from him. It's very rewarding. So what are you learning from him? One of the things I'm learning from him is that he is watching me and he knows because I talk about ADHD um, very openly and he went through some very typical sort of preteen adolescent type of issues. He had forgotten some things. So he had forgotten and that, you know, very out of character for him, but he'd forgotten two things in a row. Uh, where he, I think he lost money for a field trip one day. And then the next day there was something else that happened, but he, he had like a bit of an anxiety attack around it. So we worked through that. And then he asked me after everything had kind of calmed down, he said, mom, do you think I have a disorder? 
And I said, no, I don't. And I, and I actually borrowed this from you. I said, but if you do, if you did, that would be fine. We would, you know, figure it out and deal with that problem. But I don't think that's the problem we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So that was what I'd gotten from you. Like, let's make sure we're solving the right problem. Right. So I said, I, I don't think that that's what it is. And then I talked to him a little bit more about how it manifested for me and that this behavior, like, you know, him forgetting things was something I did several times in a week. So that this was out of character for him. But, but what I learned from, from him through that is that, you know, he's, he's watching and analyzing, analyzing himself a little bit and doing that same comparison type thing, because I think we all do it. Right. And if I can put my coach hat on for mm -hmm. all of a second and a half, something to be mindful going forward is I wonder how much of that anxiety that he experienced was not around forgetting the field trip money, mm -hmm. but around, do I have a disorder? Right. So if he winds up forgetting something in the future or loses track of time or does something ADHD-ish, mm -hmm. pay attention to the emotional response because he might be, if it spikes the anxiety, that anxiety might not be around just that small incident. Right. It might be him worrying about what does that mean? Does it mean I have ADHD? I see that that has made things harder for my mom. I'm worried that that might be a thing that's happening for me. Right. Yeah. That may, that makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely see where that, that could be. And hopefully we've addressed it and he is, you know, he's aware that a, I don't think it's a problem, but B, even if it is okay. Right. Yeah. But at that age, at that age, at 12, he's concerned about anything that makes him different from everybody else anything that's going to make them stand out. Right. That's supposed to happen. I would, I used to joke a lot about the fact that he would, like when we would leave the house, he literally would say to me, mom, do you have, do you have the keys? Mm -hmm. And I would say, yes, I've got the keys. And he would say, show them to me. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so I would show him my keys and then, oh, you know, I get frustrated, but I kind of laughed a little bit and then I would, but I, I had, there was, there were, there was a lot of that type of sort of, I almost want to say reverse parenting kind of behavior. And I would joke that he was the adult in our relationship. And that was something that I had joked about when you and I were talking and I'm so grateful that you brought it up to me and said, Hey, that might be putting some added pressure on him we actually had a conversation around it and you know, afterward, and that has not been our dynamic anymore. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Cause thank, thank to, you for that. Yeah, sure. He needs to be able to be a kid. Well, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I also need to be the parent. You know what I mean? Like that's, that is, that's a dynamic that, that I need as well. Not that I, not that I'm not the parent, but I think he does. He's a pretty well-adjusted kid. You know, he has issues just like any other. And as we're getting closer to the teen years, he's starting to talk back. That was something he never did before. So, you know, and I, I had for a long time, always thought that I was, it felt like I was the only one going through things. And now I realize you know, I have, because of having the tribe, I can look at, oh, this is stuff that everyone goes through at this point. And swinging back to him need, needing to be the kid and mom, do you have the keys, right? There's mm -hmm. a line there. Because I also recommend that if you are bad at something, 
that's connected to the family, it's okay to say like, hey, son or daughter, can you remind me to do this thing? Can you help me out with this thing that I keep messing up on, right? Mm -hmm. That's okay. The line in, in your example is, hey, mom, do you have the keys? I'm totally cool with that. Right. Show them to me. You cross the line. <laughs> You're not the parent. You can right. be my assistant. You can't be my boss. <laughs> right. And so that's where that line is. Right. Right. right? And, and I just want to clarify that because I know there's going to be going to be people listening, especially people in the parent coaching groups who are like, wait a minute, <laughs> Brendan right. told me that I can have my kid help me with the stuff that I struggle with and help right. reinforce structures and systems. And that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. It is. They just can't act like they're the boss. Right. They can be the assistant. They can't be the boss. And that right. was where your son was crossing the line. Right. That's where the role reversal hits. Right. So you've kind of hinted at this a little bit, but what has ADHD added to your family? Oh, wow. That is a great question. The first thing I think of is just my spontaneity and the fact that I know like I'm a super fun parent. He genuinely enjoys hanging out with me. We're not at that stage where he doesn't. Um, we do a lot of fun things together. A lot of times he, because he's an only child. So, you know, I'll say, if you want to bring a friend, you can. He's like, oh, I'm good hanging out with you. That is, I know that part of my personality is because of my ADHD. So that's, that's something that it's added especially with the, um, with the co-parenting, a couple of things. One is I really simplified my life. When I went through all these changes, uh, when I went through the divorce, I also, during this time of the functional depression, I lost three jobs during that time. Wow. So there was a lot going on. I really simplified my life. I didn't go back to work right away. I realized very quickly how that busy was actually harming the family unit. I, I simplified things. That was, that's something awareness of ADHD has helped me with. But the other thing that I think it's helped me with is, is not to be so judgmental of other people. I stopped being judgmental of myself and was very accepting of myself. And that in turn allowed me to be very accepting and non-judgmental toward other people. So even though his dad's not my favorite person, you know, I, I accept a lot of things and I feel that I'm in a much better place because of the journey that I've gone through with both depression and ADHD. And it sounds like that acceptance of other people has helped with the co-parenting. Absolutely. Because you're able to kind of accept what your ex-husband is doing. And I'm sure he has flaws just like everyone does. And you can navigate that a little more effectively because right. you can accept it. Right. You, you mentioned earlier that the co-parenting has been largely successful, that you've been able to pull that off. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people listening who are co-parenting. There may even be some people listening who are concerned that they might have to be co-parenting at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for co-parenting and, and those, the strategies around that that you've been able to implement successfully? I do. The number one thing that we did, and I, and I do believe that we did it successfully, we had a very tumultuous ending to our marriage. Highly, highly emotional, I'll, I'll say that. And it didn't matter what the issues were around our son, we were able to put him first. I went through a few times where I wondered, am I saying no, you know, to, to his dad, or am I Am I doing that out of spite or am I doing it because it's the best for my son? So I really challenged my own responses to him 
and made sure that I was being very honest with myself. And in the beginning, it was spiteful. There were some, some times that I was being spiteful because I was angry with him. So, you know, I think that, that first, the first thing is putting, putting the child before anything else. And I do see that a lot with co-parenting. People have been so hurt. And I, you know, I'm certainly not judging that because I went through that too, where they're so hurt that their decisions aren't necessarily in the best interest of the kid. So that's the first and foremost. And then to, to kind of challenge yourself and be really honest with yourself of what your motives are um, and those types of things. The other thing that I think is really important is to build community. So for me, I, you know, I was involved in the PTA. I live in a neighborhood where I got to know the neighbors. I got to know my son's friend's parents. So I am able to, I look at it as a village and we help each other out. So I think that's something that's, that's really, really important and has helped me tremendously in that. Awesome. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials around ADHD or recovering from, from suicidal ideation and depression or co-parenting or thought awareness and management that you would like to share? If I were to leave people with any sort of parting thoughts, it would be to be very, very mindful of how they are comparing themselves to others and understanding that we're all different. So when I said at the beginning that I felt like I was a failure, I felt like I was a failure at every aspect in my, in my life. As a wife, a mother, a, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a, an employee, all of those things, it was because I was comparing myself to some standard that wasn't real. So I think it's really important that we don't compare ourselves to others, figure out who we are and what we bring to the table because everybody brings something different and something special. I think compare, comparing themselves to others can be the, the key to starting to make a, another pivotal shift. Or not comparing ourselves to others. Okay. Yes, not okay. comparing ourselves to others. Thank you. That's the case. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. No, that, that was great. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.